Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. All right, everyone, this is my first show after CrimeCon Orlando, and I wanted to thank everyone who stopped on my booth to say hi, and other people who just stopped by to learn more about the show and why I do what I do. Before I begin today, I wanted to make you aware that in the last few weeks, I did a few podcast appearances on two shows. And if you're interested in taking a listen to those episodes, I'm going to be linking them in the show notes. First, I was on the Asking Why podcast with Clint Davis. Clint is a veteran turned therapist. And on his show, I discussed the podcast, my why, a little bit about my military background, and overall my faith in God and how both my faith and therapy helped me get through some tough times, especially in this last season. The other show I was on was Bra It's a Murder, where I joined Andre, another veteran, to continue to shed light on the mysterious death of Denisha Montgomery. I brought you Denisha's story many, many months ago, and her sister Brooke is still looking for answers. Check out that episode of Bra It's a Murder, and let's continue to share Denisha's story. All right, today's story takes us all the way to the West Coast. It starts with a morbid discovery in Joshua Tree National Park and leads back to a military officer. This is not the story of Aaron Corbin. Many of you have asked me to cover Aaron's case and I have already covered it in a mini episode in my Patreon. So if you're interested in hearing Aaron's story, please check it out at patreon.com slash military murder and look at the bootcamp level. And this is a good time to plug my Patreon again. If you want more content, there are dozens of extra episodes on my Patreon and Apple Premium subscription. And just as an FYI, kind of an update, for those of you who listen on Spotify, Patreon has joined forces with Spotify so that you can listen to Patreon episodes on Spotify, just like my Apple listeners are able to listen to bonus content on Apple. All right. Join me today as I tell you the story of Henry Stange. Now, let's dig in. If I'm being completely truthful, I had never heard about Joshua Tree National Park until I started this podcast. Apparently, it's located in the Marines' backyard, at least those stationed at 29 Palms. But Joshua Tree National Park is a beautiful desert where outdoorsy people go to do, you know, outdoorsy things. When I looked it up, it's where two deserts meet, the Mojave Desert and the Colorado Desert. Heck, there's even a podcast about this called Where Two Deserts Meet. Anyway, it's at the Joshua Tree National Park on June 1st, 2018, where a hiker spotted a flock of vultures circling an area. The hiker was amused by the vultures and figured they were circling an area where an animal lay dead. So the man snapped a picture of the vultures and snapped a picture of the dirt under the vultures, and he went about his day. The following morning, the man shared the Joshua Tree pictures with his wife, and he told her the story about the vultures. 
He showed his wife the pics and was like, that's pretty cool, right? The wife, probably an investigation discovery addict like the rest of us, stared at the picture and she was like, are you sure that was a dead animal? As she stared harder, she swore it looked like a body part. The man was like, no way. Could it be? Feeling uneasy after talking to his wife, the man called the Joshua Tree Park Rangers and explained what he had seen the day before. He was able to give the park ranger a specific location as well as the picture. The park ranger went out to the location and it wasn't hard to spot because the vultures were still there 24 hours later. As the park ranger got closer, he scared a coyote away. Initially, the park ranger thought it was probably nothing, but when he saw the vultures and the coyote during daylight hours, he got weary. As he got closer, he immediately knew this was not a dead animal. This was a dead body. He couldn't see the full body, but it appeared that the partial body of a man had been unearthed. The ranger immediately called the sheriff's office. When the sheriff's department arrived on scene, they discovered the body of a grown adult man. It was evident he had been murdered elsewhere and dumped at this particular location. There was no signs of a struggle nearby, no blood, nothing. Just a body haphazardly dug in a two by two foot grave. But the man clearly had been laying dead in the desert for at least two weeks. The man did not have any form of identification on his person, but at autopsy, they were able to obtain fingerprints and run them against prints in the DMV. And when they did, they got a hit. The victim was 54-year-old Henry Allen Stange. He was from Marietta, California. Authorities immediately went to Henry's home to one, informed his loved ones, and two, try to figure out what the hell happened to Henry. But when they showed up at the house, no one answered. Once they were able to make entry into the home, the interior of the home appeared normal, pristine. Nothing seemed out of place. No forced entry, nothing. But then, as investigators made their way to the garage, they discovered what they had been looking for. The crime scene. There was blood and a horrible attempt at a cleanup just laying right there. Henry was a ham radio operator, a hobbyist, if you will. And he had this setup of this radio thing in his garage, along with a boat and other garage items. For those of you who wondered what a ham radio is, like me, it's a communication tool that allows people to talk without internet or cell phone. And really, that's all I know about that. So anyway, so they find blood all over the floor in the garage. And when I watched an episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn on this case, they showed pictures. And listen, whoever tried to clean up did an absolutely terrible job because there was so much blood everywhere. As detectives took inventory of the scene, it was clear that whoever did this tried to clean it up, not only because of the smears left absolutely everywhere, but the smell of bleach was overwhelming. Authorities were hopeful, though, that whoever did this, well, maybe they left behind a fingerprint, a footprint, or better yet, their very own blood DNA. That hope, however, was shattered when nothing at the crime scene developed any suspects. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. 
but I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Henry's autopsy revealed that he had suffered at least one blunt force trauma injury to the head. He had multiple fractures and sharp force injuries to the side of his neck, at least two inches deep. On the back of his head, he suffered from chop-type injuries. Because of the level of decomposition, it was hard to say what type of weapon or weapons had been used, but the medical examiner determined that some of Henry's injuries were obtained from being stomped on. Henry lived alone. When authorities reached out to his mother, Caroline Doherty, she was horrified, but then it all started to make sense. She had been trying to reach her son, Henry, since May 24th and had never heard back from him. Now she knew why. Henry had two sisters, Diana and Judy. When Henry's mom and sisters were asked about Henry, investigators learned a few things that led them in a lot of different directions when it came to the investigation. For starters, Henry was in the process of a divorce. He and his wife had small children and, well, things got contentious at times. Second, authorities learned that Henry suffered a handicap after he was hit by a drunk driver. Henry had been riding his motorcycle one day and had been stopped in front of a house when a drunk driver plowed into him and dragged him on for two blocks. His leg was badly damaged and he couldn't walk without assistance. Due to his injury, he was in constant pain. He was on all types of painkillers and he couldn't hold down a regular job. Well, when this happened, he got really into this ham radio stuff and Henry was described as the Howard Stern of ham radio. Some people loved him, but many, many, many people, and I mean many people, also hated the guy. Without much else to do, Henry was on the radio airwaves regularly, like every single day. But after May 24th, no one heard from Henry ever again. Henry's family and friends had shared with investigators that someone in the ham radio community had attacked Henry months earlier in January. Well, this is what happened. Henry had shared with his family that someone broke into his house and attacked him with a hammer. He didn't get a good look at the person, but he was sure the person tried to kill him. The crazy thing is that Henry never reported this incident to authorities, but even scarier, Henry shared with his loved ones that he was pretty sure that whoever attacked him in January 
would come back to finish the job. And sadly, Henry would be right. After the January attack, Henry installed surveillance cameras all over his house and in the garage, but conveniently missing from the crime scene and the entire house were those exact surveillance cameras he had recently installed. Authorities tracked down some of these so-called ham radio community haters, but they all had alibis and it was a bust. Authorities tracked down Henry's estranged wife who was cooperative. While she was happy to be soon divorced, it didn't appear they had been fighting over anything significant and definitely didn't look like she wanted him dead. She still controlled some of the bills and she confirmed that utility usage went down after May 24th. So authorities knew that Henry was likely murdered on or soon after May 24th. And then Henry's wife told authorities something else. Henry had a girlfriend. She was super young, half his age. When authorities asked Henry's sisters about this girlfriend, they were like, yeah, she's super young. The sisters didn't really think that the girlfriend could be involved in his murder, but, you know, they thought it was strange because Henry was head over heels in love with her and, you know, she hadn't been around for very long. The new girlfriend was 27-year-old Ashley Stab. When investigators looked into Ashley, one of the neighbors revealed that the last time they saw her in Henry's neighborhood was on the day the police showed up to search Henry's house. They knew it was her because she drove a beat-up blue Honda with damage to the front so it was definitely her. Wait, that's weird. It was weird because investigators hadn't spoken to Ashley. And it was even weirder because she had passed by her boyfriend's house who was surrounded by cop cars and didn't even bother to stop to ask what was happening. And Ashley never even called his family. Nothing. So investigators do a little search for Ashley on the internet. And the first thing that comes up is a picture of her in a Marine Corps uniform and the caption reads, quote, First Lieutenant Curtis Kruger, Communications Officer, Combat Logistics Battalion 7, demonstrates how to apply camouflage paint on Ashley Stapp. During the unit's Jane Wayne Day abroad the Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center, 29 Palms, California, May 10th, 2018, end quote. That's weird. For those of you wondering what Jane Wayne Day is, it's a day to give spouses a glimpse into the day-to-day -day lives of their active duty spouses through the Combat Convoy Simulator, a live fire range, and a combat fitness test. So investigators look further into Ashley, and sure enough, she isn't a Marine, but she is dating, or at this point, engaged to a Marine by the name of First Lieutenant Kruger. They also learn that Ashley likes to pop pills, and as soon as they learn this, they realize that Ashley was probably with Henry because remember, she's 27 and he's 54, and she's probably with him because of his oxy prescription. So before bringing Ashley in, police need to know, could Ashley really be involved in Henry's murder? They look into Ashley and Curtis's phone records, and they determine that the two of them were in fact in the area of Henry's house when he was last seen alive. And that's when police get a warrant to wiretap Ashley's phone. They want to listen in on her conversations. But initially, they were getting nothing. Then they pull a trick out of their sleeve. They visit Ashley's brother. So they show him a picture of Ashley and Henry together and they ask the brother if he recognizes Henry. And he doesn't. He clearly recognizes his sister and he says so. Authorities tell the brother that they are investigating a crime and they ask if he thinks Ashley might know anything about the crime. 
I'm not even sure that they actually tell him what the crime is. Unbeknownst to the brother, they are listening in on Ashley's phone. And when they leave the brother's house, what does the brother do? He calls Ashley and he's like, hey, what's up with this dude, Henry? The cops came by my house, yada, yada, yada. And Ashley is like, well, that's weird. I don't know anything about nothing. But as soon as she hangs up with her brother, who do you think she calls? She immediately calls Curtis Kruger. And that's when they started chatting about good old Henry. While never completely implicating themselves, they start to wonder aloud during this conversation, how could anyone know? Curtis then said, no one would have seen me loading him into my truck because I pulled in way far back into the garage. Yikes. Then Curtis remembered the girl who passed by Henry's house while they were leaving and waved goodbye. But then during another wiretap conversation, both Ashley and Curtis start talking about Henry's security cameras. As they go down the list of times they could have been seen by witnesses, one of them wondered if there were cameras at the entrance of Joshua Tree National Park. Bingo! Authorities decide now is the time to bring Ashley in for questioning. They ask her if she was involved in Henry's murder and she denied, denied, denied. But when they let her in on the wiretap conversation, she immediately flipped. But initially, she never named Curtis. She just said a man and she never named him. When authorities are like, listen, Ashley, we know you're talking about Curtis Kruger. She finally caved. According to her, Curtis was her boyfriend and he was upset about her sexual relationship with Henry. But she said she never thought Curtis would kill Henry. She said after Curtis killed Henry, they rolled him up in a blanket and drove him to Joshua Tree. She blamed the entire ordeal on the fact that her fiancé Curtis kept a tight tab on her via phone, meaning he was tracking her phone everywhere she went. When authorities brought First Lieutenant Curtis Kruger in for questioning, he immediately lawyered up. Curtis was arrested in late August 2018, but there was a little snag in the case. When investigators brought their evidence to the DA, the DA was like, listen, this is not enough evidence. And with the scant evidence, they were not prepared to file charges. The investigators were floored, jaws on the floor floored. But they needed more evidence. It was better that they let him go now and gather as much evidence as possible. It was a difficult thing to see, but within days of their arrest, Curtis was allowed to walk. It's not every day a military officer is arrested for a suspected murder. So as soon as he had been taken in by the authorities, NCIS and all the JAGs at 29 Palms, they knew. And when he was released, NCIS scooped him up and the JAGs worked with Marine leadership to put Curtis in pretrial confinement. Because while the civilians were not prepared to file charges, the Marines were ready to go. And all of this is in accordance with an episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn. I didn't read any news articles that actually indicated that Curtis was in military pretrial confinement, but that was what they said on the episode. So I'm just going to go with that. And it's possible that maybe he wasn't. Everything was kind of in limbo at this point. Henry's family was furious because even though Curtis was allegedly in pretrial confinement, they felt that his release from civilian confinement was a slap in the face and they wondered if they would ever get justice for Henry. But then, one day, a new tip came in. A confession of sorts. 
Curtis Kruger was a special military breed, the enlisted officer type. He joined the Marines at the ripe age of 17 in 2005. He did his enlisted thing for a little bit, but after obtaining his four-year college degree, he transitioned from enlisted to officer in 2015. Curtis was a man's man and a handsome one at that. He was a black belt in martial arts, and you could tell this dude loved the gym. I am sure Curtis was a ladies' man, but it was a woman he met at his cousin's house that kept his attention. Curtis had been couch surfing at his cousin's house on weekends while stationed at 29 Palms, and it was when his cousin was on vacation in Mexico that Curtis met the house sitter slash dog sitter, a young woman named Ashley Stapp. At the time, Ashley was working at Jamba Juice. When Curtis told his cousin that Ashley was cute, his cousin was like, listen, stay away from her. Curtis's cousin was looking out for him because she knew that Ashley was a pill popper, abusing prescription medication as much as possible. You see, when Ashley was 23 years old, she injured her hip. At the time, she had been prescribed Norco and Percocet. But by the time she was healed, she was hooked on the pain pills. Ashley then began to buy the pain kills illegally online. By 2017, Ashley was paying at least $600 a day. Yes, I said $600 a day on prescription medication. A court opinion that I read revealed that when Ashley didn't have her own money for the pills, she would steal them from family, people would give her the pills with the promise she would repay them, or she would exchange sex for pills to fuel her addiction. And it was when Ashley was looking for prescription medication on old, reliable Craigslist that she met 54-year-old Henry Stange. When Ashley met Henry in person at his house for the first time, it was to exchange sex for oxycodone. By late 2017, Ashley and Curtis began dating. But by that time, she had been seeing Henry for sex and drugs regularly. But she kept that part of her life a secret from Curtis. When she began to date Curtis, she would still see Henry once a month on the side. Ashley was really living two different lives. To Curtis and his family and friends, Ashley was his girlfriend. They even talked about marriage and life together. But when she was with Henry, Henry introduced Ashley to his friends and family and even his estranged wife as his girlfriend. Soon after Curtis began to date Ashley, he noticed something was off. But instead of asking or doing anything about it, he would just take notes on his phone about it. The first thing he noticed was that Ashley drank a lot. And not just she drank a lot, but she drank and drove. And on one occasion, she drank to excess and then vanished, only to be found later passed out in her car in the desert. Wanting to help, Curtis asked Ashley to share her phone location with him in case he ever needed to help her. Ashley agreed. And it wasn't until January 2018 that Curtis learned that Henry Stange even existed. During a family gathering while together, Ashley looked at her phone. I guess she was like reading an email or something. And she became very upset. She proceeded to throw the phone to the ground and stomp on it and then walked off. Confused, Curtis picked up the phone and saw the name Henry. It was an email from him. Curtis sent Henry an email telling him to leave Ashley alone or else. And well, a few days later, when Curtis went to look for Ashley's location, he noticed that her location had been turned off, likely because her phone was off. And that's when the spidey senses started going off. He remembered the Henry character, you know, from the email, and he was like, 
oh my gosh, she's cheating on me with this guy named Henry. By this point, Curtis and Ashley appear to be squatting in some abandoned house near Joshua Tree. One day, Curtis found out about Ashley's drug addiction. He also went through her phone and learned more about Henry, and he was very upset. One day after work, Curtis got home and Ashley wasn't there. When he checked her location, her location was off. I imagine that Curtis stayed by that phone waiting for her location to be turned back on. And when it did in Marietta, he beelined there, where he found her at a gas station. Curtis then confronted Ashley about Henry, and that's when Ashley made up an elaborate lie. She cried and told Curtis that Henry had raped her. According to Ashley, Curtis then forced her to reveal Henry's address, and he drove to Henry's house, grabbed a hammer from his car, and broke into Henry's home where he beat him to a pulp, practically leaving him for dead. Curtis told Ashley he did a bad thing when he got into the truck, but she had no clue what happened in the house. The following day, Ashley was worried about Henry, or maybe she just wanted to get some more drugs, but she went to Henry's house where Henry revealed he had been attacked. He had suffered a serious concussion and was bleeding from his ear, but Ashley didn't reveal the attacker's name, nor that she knew him. Meanwhile, Curtis became more and more paranoid about Ashley. It's almost like he became obsessed with knowing her every move. He stalked her phone, took screenshots of her phone, sent them to himself, responded to emails and messages from her phone, questioned why she kept turning off her locations. He was driving himself crazy. He wrote notes about his suspicions on his phone, like, dude, really, you need a life and a new girlfriend. But wait, in true military fashion, despite all these red flags, in April of 2018, guess what Curtis did? Some of you probably guessed it. Curtis proposed to Ashley and she said yes. But then on May 23rd, Ashley got an email from Henry. He had gotten his hands on some oxy and he invited her for an oxy party. Ashley could not pass on this opportunity. Engaged or not, she needed to get her fix. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in the detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. May 24th was this big military family day at 29 Palms. So on that day, while Curtis was on base at work, 
Ashley took the opportunity to send him a message to let him know she was going to her mom's house to pick something up. I believe it was like suitcases or something. Curtis was sus. So he watched Ashley's location as she drove from their place to her mom's place. But then the location stopped moving. It just kind of stayed idle at her mom's house. By noon that day, the family day activity started at 29 Palms and Ashley, who promised to be there, was nowhere to be found. WTF, thought Curtis. So Curtis called Ashley's mom and the mom was like, bro, I'm out of town. I don't know where my daughter is. Now Curtis's blood began to boil. Curtis stayed at the family event for like a hot minute, but then he told his boss that he had to go because he had a family event. He lied and said he suspected his fiance was suicidal. And now that he couldn't get a hold of her, he was very worried. The boss was like, do what you got to do. And with that, Curtis left. As he exited the base, Curtis saw Ashley's location still at her mom's house. Realizing it would take him over 90 minutes to get there, he called the cops to conduct a welfare check. Now, this part of the story is confusing because maybe he did believe that Ashley could hurt herself or maybe he was setting up his alibi with his boss. Regardless, cops went out to Ashley's mother's house in Canyon Lake and never found Ashley. Meanwhile, Curtis was probably racing to get to the house. So this is where things get even crazier. Curtis arrived at Ashley's mom's house. No one was home. Ashley's car wasn't there. And he starts to call her off the hook. And then Curtis finds Ashley's phone just chilling on the lawn, like just laying there. It appeared that Ashley had intentionally left her phone there to throw Curtis off because she knew that he was like basically stalking her. And sadly, Curtis knew exactly where Ashley was at Henry's house. So Curtis drove to Henry's house and when he got there, he saw Ashley's car parked right outside. Unbeknownst to Curtis, although he had probably already imagined it, Henry and Ashley had gotten high on Oxy, had sex and had just wrapped things up. Ashley was in the bathroom. Henry was in the garage in his boxers or something like that with the garage door open. He was playing some music when all of a sudden Curtis attacked Henry. Henry fought back like hell. Ashley heard a commotion and when she got to the garage, Henry was practically dead and there was blood everywhere. Curtis quick told Ashley to get in her car and they drove off in separate cars and met up at Ashley's mom's house. That's where they got together and brainstormed. They realized that Henry had cameras and there was evidence to get rid of. So with that in mind, they returned in Curtis's car to Henry's house. They removed all the security cameras. They took Henry's cell phone. They took his computer and they tried to clean up the scene as much as possible. Then they packed up Henry's body in a blanket and put him in Curtis's truck. Before leaving, of course, Ashley snagged all of the leftover oxy on the way out because, well, that's what addicts do. They then drove to Joshua Tree where they drove around aimlessly looking for the perfect dumping grounds. So you're probably wondering how Curtis and Ashley eventually got caught. Well, it had something to do with the January 2018 hammer attack. Unbeknownst to Henry Stange, the January 2018 hammer attack had taken place at the hands of his lover's boyfriend. But Henry had thought all along it was a ham radio community rival. Well, it was when Curtis was in military pretrial confinement and civilian investigators were looking for more evidence that they got the tip they needed. 
Someone called authorities to reveal that Curtis had confessed to the January 2018 hammer attack on Henry. This person also revealed that Curtis had left Henry for dead and was shocked that he survived. And in revealing the attack story, Curtis also told this person that during the hammer attack, the hammer was disformed, like it was bent. When asked what he did with the hammer, Curtis said he disposed of it in the desert. Upon obtaining this new information or this tip, authorities were prepared to talk to Ashley. And this time they were prepared to offer her a deal. When they offered her that sweet deal, of course, she took it. And that's when she confessed to being in the car during the January 2018 attack. She also confessed to being with Curtis when he disposed of the hammer. So they're freaking out. They asked her to tell them the general area where Curtis could have ditched the hammer. And she told them she was kind of like here in this general area. So authorities took up quite the task. And when I say authorities, I believe it was NCIS. At least that's who was credited with taking on the daunting task of searching for the hammer. So NCIS took to searching for the hammer in the desert. And wouldn't you know it, they found it. With this new evidence about the January 2018 attack, combined with the wiretap information and the cooperation of Ashley Stapp, civilian authorities took Curtis from the Marines on December 13th, 2018 and charged him not only with murder, but with the January 2018 assault on Henry Stange. He was held on a $1 million bond. The trial against Curtis Kruger got underway in August of 2020. But by this point, his once fiance had already had her day in court following her plea deal. You see, in 2019, Ashley Stapp, whose first name appears to actually be Nicole, so it's either like Nicole Ashley Stapp or Ashley Nicole Stapp, well, she pled guilty to accessory after the fact and she was sentenced to 10 months in jail and three years probation for her part in Henry's death. At the trial, all the evidence that I've already mentioned was presented and when it was his defense's turn to present evidence, should they please, First Lieutenant Curtis Kruger took the stand. By this point, I don't think he was a first lieutenant anymore because he had probably been discharged from the Marines. I am sure that Curtis Kruger was counting on his good looks to help him out in court. On the stand, according to a recap in an appellate opinion, Curtis claimed that the January attack was in self-defense or in defense of another. Specifically, Curtis said that he had accompanied Ashley to Henry's house to retrieve some items. Curtis claimed that as Ashley was walking through the house, Henry got in her way to stop her and Curtis jumped in to defend her. He did acknowledge that a hammer attack was a little on the excessive side. As it pertains to the day of the murder, Curtis, on the stand, admitted that he was genuinely concerned with Ashley's well-being as the day prior she had jumped in front of traffic and almost got struck by a truck when she was upset. During the Marine Corps Family Day event, when Curtis tried to reach Ashley, she was not responding to his text messages, which caused him concern. When he got to her mother's house and found her cell phone, he panicked and went straight to the house where Ashley had previously claimed she had been raped. When Curtis saw Ashley's car in front of Henry's house, he figured she was just cheating on him and that he would just break up with her. But just then, Henry saw Curtis and gestured at him to come in from the garage. When Curtis asked about Ashley, Henry allegedly said she wasn't there. That's when Curtis claimed that Henry came at him with a knife. Curtis, of course, a Marine and strong as hell, 
disarmed Henry and stabbed him in the neck as they scuffled to the floor. Eventually, after the brutal knockdown brawl, Henry was on the floor as Curtis got free. That's when Curtis claimed that Henry grabbed his leg, which is why Curtis had to stomp on Henry's head to get free from him. But wait, on the stand, Curtis said that after the quote unquote fight, he ran inside the house expecting to find Ashley inside the house all tied up like, I don't know, like she had been kidnapped. But instead, he found her in the bathroom. And let's be honest, she was probably in the bathroom stealing all of Henry's medication. Curtis then told Ashley they needed to go before Henry came after them. The couple later discussed calling the ambulance, but it was Ashley's idea to bury the body instead. Oh boy, I am sure that everyone in the courtroom was shocked after hearing his testimony. But the jury did not buy Curtis's story. Well, at least not completely. At the end of the day, they found Curtis guilty of second-degree murder and the January assault. In mid-October, Curtis got to stand before the judge for sentencing. During sentencing, Curtis apologized for causing so much pain, but he claimed he didn't kill out of jealousy, but in an effort to save Ashley from the man who was feeding her drugs and who had previously assaulted her. At the end of the day, Curtis did admit that he, quote, foolishly took Henry for a rapist and a predator, but the man who died was a father, end quote. But the judge was not happy with Curtis, still trying to skirt justice. The presiding judge said, quote, Mr. Kruger intentionally took the life of another individual with malice aforethought in a brutal fashion. It wasn't because he was under the mistaken impression that his girlfriend was the victim of rape. It was because he was enraged that his girlfriend was intimately involved with another man, end quote. With that, Curtis was sentenced to three years for the assault, followed by 15 years to life for Henry's murder. The sentences are to be served back to back. In wrapping up this episode, I wanted to bring you a resource if you or someone you knew was suffering from a prescription drug addiction. I reached out to my dear friend Leah D from Least of These Podcasts and she gave me a few that I'm going to be adding to my show notes. They're going to be websites. For those of you who have TRICARE or other medical insurance, the best way to get help is to be truthful with your medical provider. It's also helpful to understand that it is a process. But with the proper care and support, overcoming addiction is possible and there is hope. My heart really goes out to Henry Stange from this episode because he was likely also overcoming an addiction with his pain and disability. Ashley Stapp wasn't a saint, but she was clearly also battling her addiction problems. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode. If you're interested in seeing pictures and learning more about this case, make sure you check out that episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn. Additional resources used to put this episode together include an appellate court opinion from the Superior Court of Riverside County and articles found in the Marine Corps Times, Desert Sun, The Press Enterprise, NBC San Diego, and Heavy.com. All right, be sure that you're following me on YouTube at Mama Margot. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. The theme music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time.
Mama's working on her podcast. I don't want to.